You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Abbott on July 19th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. My name is Tim. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, Thank you, Laura, for reading for us. Uh, It is such a joy to hear and read God's Word together, and you did it wonderfully, so thank you. Uh, It is a joy uh, to be able to gather together um, and to see what God is doing, to to be able to uh, gather together in our homes, to know what God is doing. Uh, If you are new or visiting with us, whether you are watching at home, whether you are here and new, uh, we're so glad that you are here. If you are watching at home, uh, there will hopefully be some links uh, for you to click on as a way to connect uh, with Redemption Hill so that we can let you know more about our church. Uh, We would love the opportunity just to get to know you, to get to talk to you to let you know more about uh, Redemption Hill. If you've been uh, watching with us or joined with us in person in the last few weeks, you know that we are in the middle of our series focused on the parables of Jesus. And last week and this week, we are walking through the fourth sermon that Jesus gave in the book of Matthew. It is found in Matthew chapter 18, and this sermon from Jesus is intended to show Christians how much we should care for one another, how we are supposed to live with one another. Last week, we looked at the parable of the unforgiving servant. We saw that as, as Christians, because of what God has done for us in Christ, because of the forgiveness that God has, has extended to us in Christ, then we can joyfully forgive our fellow Christians. We can always be ready to forgive, even when someone has sinned against us personally. And so today, we will be focused on the other parable that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 18. It is the parable of the lost sheep. And we will walk through much of the first half of this chapter to help us understand why Jesus gives this parable in this setting. The parable of the lost sheep should be, probably is, might be very familiar to some of you. Uh, This is a well-known story, whether you are a Christian or or not. Uh, There are actually two versions of this this parable given by Jesus. There is the more well-known version uh, given, given by him in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, it is the first of a series of parables uh, that that he gives, uh, known as the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son. Because those go together so well in meaning and and theme, and they're so beautiful and powerful, most of the time, it is that version of this parable that you hear about. That is the version that is most often preached. And and many times if we see something similar in in the Gospels, if we see a similar parables, we can think that they are exactly the same, just different accounts of the the same parable. Uh, But that is not true in this case. Uh, These were given about nine months apart. They were given in different cities. There is a different setting. There is a different audience. There is a different application. And those differences are actually very important. The context... The surrounding verses help us to to understand what what Jesus wants to teach us in this moment. The parable given in Luke was given to the Pharisees and the scribes. It is given when they were criticizing him for for spending time with the tax collectors, with people they saw as sinners. Um, He is giving this to them as a way to help them see God's heart for unbelievers. The the version here in Matthew was given to Jesus' disciples and was given as a part of a, of a sermon that, that is meant to teach his disciples how they are supposed to be with one another. Specifically, 
How do we respond when temptation comes in, when sin enters in and causes a fellow believer to wander away, to, 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 to go out, to go astray? When sin comes in and causes a believer to question or doubt who God is, to become bitter, and to, to wander away from God and his church. The version of this parable in Matthew is, is really telling the church how to care for its own, how to care for those that through sin or lack of faith or, or maybe because they've been hurt by the sins of others and it's caused bitterness, it has caused them to wander away from the rest of the flock. The point of this sermon from Jesus is to help the church know how we are meant to live with one another. This parable specifically is, to, is meant to show us the great lengths that God goes to pursue each and every one of us. And then that should then motivate us as Christians to pursue one another. Um, let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear your word. Um, Father, I thank you for your heart, for your people, and all that you have done and are doing and will do to save us from our sin and to keep us safely with you. Father, move us to act today as, as your people. Father, I pray that you would, uh, you would move us uh, to strengthen the weak, to encourage the faint-hearted, uh, to rebuke those who are in sin, to uh, help those who are in sin, and to move us to act for the sake of your people. And because you have so graciously acted on our behalf, you have so graciously given us your son so that we could become a part of your family. Uh, teach us your word and apply this to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, several years ago, we took our kids um, to Bush Gardens. We really just took one of the kids because the other one was a few months old and just stayed in a stroller the whole time. And we took them to Bush Gardens. And at Bush Gardens, uh, if you've been there before, in the middle of the park, they had this huge play space um, called Land of Dragons or Dragonland or something. There's definitely a lot of dragons there. Um, it, is, it is primarily a big fake tree with two slides attached. Um, and then there's some ropes that cross over to another tree that doesn't have any slides. And, uh, and so we go there, and there's a lot of, of happy-looking dragons. And we were there on Memorial Day weekend, which I know, smart move. Um, there were at least 100,000 six-year-olds going down two slides. Um, now, as a general rule, you should know this about my, my wife and I, we are very, 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 very overprotective of our kids. Um, in general, this will give you an idea. If they want to go outside to get a ball, uh, we will give them a walkie-talkie, we will attach a tracking beaker, and then we will walk with them outside to get the ball just in case we get separated. Um, so uh, we, our, we can never be too safe. Our, our son Abraham is, is four or five at the time and very excited about this dragon treehouse thing. And so over and over again, I walk up the treehouse with him, and then I just take off in the midst of all these children running down to get to the bottom of the slide uh, to meet him when he's there. And we do this a number of times, and, and then one time I run down to the end of the slide, and he isn't there. And I wait to see if he's the next kid or the next kid or the next kid, and he still doesn't come. There's no walkie-talkie, no tracking beaker, just 10,000 six-year-olds and their parents, and I can't find my son. And so I begin to scream out his name over and over again, freaking out everybody around me. I'm going up and down this, this treehouse. I'm going across a weird rope thing that is clearly made for six-year-olds and no one else. 
and, and I am frantically looking for my son. And, and I have every, it's about three minutes total, but I have every possible thought in my head, every possible scenario. We had just finished watching most of the seasons of 24, so I had fresh in my mind everything that could possibly happen. So I, I am kind of ready for this. I'm ready to do whatever I have to do to find my son. And then I realize I've got to go and find my wife and tell her what's going on and find her. And, and when I do find her, there is Abraham, there's my son, just drinking a drink with his mom because he was thirsty. And in that moment, I was, I was so mad that he wandered off. I was so angry that he hadn't done what we had told him to do, to wait for us, to make sure that you're always with one of us. But all I do in that moment is I pick him up and I hold him, and I hold him tight because the joy in finding him overwhelms everything else in that moment. The happiness that I'm feeling in that moment is greater than my desire to scold him, to teach him, to explain to him. All that will come soon. But in that moment, all I feel is pure joy that my son was lost and now he's found. It doesn't mean I, I, those things won't happen, but for now, that's all that matters. Rejoicing and celebrating that my son is okay. That moment I, I found him, I, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you, you truly do, you don't have words for it. Relief, pure joy, happiness, they, they, they seem to be the best words that you can come up with, but you know that they fall well short of what you actually intend, what you mean. Jesus says here in this parable, that when a lost sheep is found, when one of God's children is found, when one of God's children returns, that he rejoices over it in this way. He chooses this way to describe how much joy he feels. He, he says that he, he rejoices more over it than the 99 that, that never went astray. It's not that he doesn't rejoice over the 99, but the rejoicing gets ramped up so much when that one that was wandering returns. Jesus uses that moment of joy to tell us what God feels when his children return to him. And so having shown us the heart of, of the Father, he goes on to remind us that we should have that same heart. We should have that same desire for God's people, for God's children. We should have that same attitude towards those who are lost, towards those who are wandering, towards those that are weak, towards those Christians who are being led away by sin. We ought to have the same attitude that our Heavenly Father has. We need to pursue them in the same way that God in Christ has pursued us. And so he tells us how we need to do that. And to do that, we are going to have to have the humility that Christ has. We're going to have to care about the things that God cares about, and we will need to sacrificially pursue others. He starts in this, in this chapter, Matthew chapter 18, telling us that we need to humble ourselves. The whole sermon starts off with a, with a humdinger of a question from Jesus' disciples, as they are so prone to do. Uh, they say in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this could seem like an innocent question, but it is not. Uh, the reality is that this is a poorly veiled uh, way of asking the same question that they keep asking again and again. Uh, these same disciples keep asking the same question over and over. Which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And we know it is a veiled way of asking that question, partially because they ask it so many times, and partially because Jesus knows it's a veiled uh, way of asking that question. In verse 3, he takes that question and he immediately makes it very personal. Um, He makes it very personal to the ones asking the question. His response, it says, Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children. Um, If it was me in this moment, I would try to back up and say, I wasn't talking about me. I was just wondering what was going to happen. So so we know that this is a poorly veiled question. Um, Again, because they keep asking these things. Mark chapter 9 Uh, The disciples and Jesus are walking together. And it says in verse 33 and 34 that Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? And they refused to answer. Why? Because they had been arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. In Matthew chapter 20, James and John, two of the best of the best of the disciples, their mom comes and asks Jesus to give them the two highest places in his kingdom. Yes, you should be embarrassed for those men even 2,000 years later. In, in Luke chapter 22, we get Luke's account of the Last Supper. This is the last time Jesus is going to sit with these men and eat before he is crucified. Jesus has told them that one of them is going to betray him, that one of them is going to have a direct hand in his death. And then just moments later, one verse later, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, A dispute arose among them as to which one of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus told them he was going to be killed, that one of them was going to have a hand in in betraying him, and they get into an argument about which one of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. It would be easy to think, surely, again, we would get this if we were sitting there with Jesus in his last moments. We wouldn't get into this argument. Um, I played one year of uh, basketball. It was uh, so good, I retired early. Um, It was eighth grade. Um, I played in two games that year. And in one of those games, I scored four points and six rebounds. Yes, I still remember it. Um, A lot of you are soccer fans in here, so I know you might be thinking, that's an incredible game. Like, that's probably the best game I've ever heard of. And you would be right. Um, My dad was was the biggest fan of his kids in the world. And I remember after that game, he was so excited. We had lost the game by 20 points, but he was still so excited. Um, And he said, that was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And I remember very clearly thinking, maybe he's right. Uh, Maybe, just maybe, that was the single greatest individual game performance of all time. Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in one game. Kobe Bryant scored 81 points in one game against professional athletes. Michael Jordan scored 63 points in a playoff game against the eventual world champion Boston Celtics. But somehow, in my mind, it was possible that none of those quite compared to what I had just accomplished. The disciples have been arguing over and over again and will continue to argue about which one of them is going to be the greatest. Their contribution to the kingdom at this point is about the equivalent of a 4.6 rebound middle school basketball game. But they believe that somehow they deserve to be named the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus, in in a very gentle and kind way, teaches them to be humble. He leads them to humility. I love what he does here. He doesn't initially answer their question. He he stops them right in their tracks. He says in verse 3, unless you become like a child, 
you're not going to even enter the kingdom of God. Forget for a minute about being the greatest. If you guys don't humble yourself, you're not going to even make it into the kingdom. And then in verse 4, more directly to their question, the question of who is going to be the greatest. He says, the greatest in the kingdom is going to be the one that humbles themselves the most like this child. They will be the most childlike in their humility. He doesn't just tell us to humble ourselves, but very specifically to humble ourselves as a child. At that time, that was, that was a, a stark comment. According to one author, children at that time were, were a token of insignificance. They had no importance in society. They were not to be taken seriously except as a responsibility. One to be looked after, not one to be looked up to. People were not looking at children and thinking greatness. It is only the heart of God that can see that. It is only the heart of God to see that and call it not just humble, but to call it greatness. To argue about who is the greatest means that you are arguing for others to be lesser than you. If you are arguing or thinking, how great am I? Then you are arguing and thinking about making others less than you. You are trying to prove that others are inferior to you, less important than you, and nothing should be further from the mind of the Christian. The proud and self-seeking will lift themselves up by pushing down those around them. They will push them down with envy and resentment rather than humility and encouragement. What is considered greatness in your mind? If you were here, what would you be thinking? What is considered now greatness in your mind? Better job, better house, money, power, influence, significance. These are the ways that we often measure greatness. These are the ways that they were measuring greatness when they asked that question. Humility is not ours to define. Humility is is what God has done for us. Humility has been defined for us. Humility is not an action to be faked. More and more, we say as a society that we value humility. But for most of us, we have just learned to use humility as another way to get people to think highly of us. Humility is at the heart of Christ. It is a childlike humility. And it should always, in every moment, characterize God's people. And that humility that Christ leads us to, that humility that Christ calls us to, is not a stagnant humility. That humility that God calls us to leads us to action. When the disciples had been arguing about who was to be the greatest on the road in Mark 9, when Jesus sits them down, he says it this way, if anyone would be first, he must be last. And then he says this, and the servant of all. Jesus repeats this idea over and over again. If you want to be great, then you will be humble. And that humility will lead you to become the servant of all. It will not just leave you sitting in in your humility. Humility is often just seen as, as a nice attribute of God, something that shows how kind he is, but doesn't really have anything to do with the way we act. The truth is that Christ-like humility is required by God to do the things that he has called us to do in the way that he has called us to do it. Philippians chapter 2, we are told about the unflinching, immovable humility of Christ. In the, in, the, in the face of people beating him, spitting on him, killing him, 
he humbles himself. It says in verse 8 of Philippians 2 that he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humility is tied to action. His humility is tied to doing the will of the Father. His humility is tied to being the servant of all. If you are going to do what God has called you to do, then you must humble yourself. In this setting, Jesus is telling us that to truly love and care about my sheep, to care about my people, to be able to do what you're supposed to do and go and pursue brothers and sisters who have wandered away from the faith, then you will have to humble yourself. Robert preached this so well weeks ago when he preached from the parable of the prodigal son. If you remember, the father has two sons, and the younger son rebels and goes and lives in sin. He rejects the father. He rejects the family. And then, and then he turns from his sin. He gets to the end of himself, the end of his sin, and he turns from his sin and comes home. And his father is so excited, so overjoyed, that he immediately throws a huge party, a huge celebration. And then the older son becomes angry. And in Luke 15, verse 29 through, through verse 32, it says this, You never gave me, this is the, the older son talking, You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He immediately, immediately becomes self-righteous and angry. The father says, we had to celebrate. My son was lost and now he is found. The older brother wasn't just wrong because he was angry. He was also wrong because there was something he should have been doing. He should have been celebrating with him. He should have gone immediately to be right there alongside his father and rejoicing and celebrating. When he heard that his, that his sinful brother had come home, he should have gone immediately to celebrate with his father. He should have gone running into the party to embrace his younger brother, to rejoice. But instead, he becomes angry and full of pride. It is pride, it is that lack of humility that prevents the older son from doing what he should have done with, when his brother turned from his sin and came home. When we see other Christians wandering off, being led away by their sin, it is a lack of childlike humility that will lead us to self-righteously proclaim they shouldn't have wandered off. I didn't, I wouldn't, and it's their fault that they did. It is a lack of humility that will look at others and say, who's pursuing me? Who is celebrating what I've done? No one is doing that much for me. So why should I go after and pursue those, those sinful people, those sinful brothers and sisters? A lack of humility will lead us to choose comfort over the hard work of pursuing others for the glory of God. A lack of humility will lead us to choose ourselves when we should be giving our lives for the sake of others. Jesus has pursued us. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross so that forgiveness and grace could be extended to us. He loved us before we ever loved him. He has given us his life for our sake, and that should now motivate us to, to humbly do that for others. That is what motivates us to humble ourselves and become obedient to what he has called us to do. Jesus is telling the disciples that as much as the Christian community is a forgiving community, the Christian community is a humble community, a group of people who continually 
consistently humble themselves because of what God has done for us in Christ. A lack of humility will keep us safely where we are, safely, firmly planted where we are when we are meant to go and pursue God's children that have wandered away from the faith. And the humility that we have in Christ can and should lead us to care about the holiness of our brothers and sisters. It will lead us to care about what God cares about. God shows us in these verses his heart for his children, and God calls us to have the same heart. We must care about the holiness of others and work towards this end because God is so very active in this pursuit, and he wants to use us in the same pursuit. We should join God in his desires. We are told in verse 10 of Matthew 18, Jesus continues on with this analogy that we must become like little children. And as he transitions into this parable, he tells us, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. He is now comparing his true followers to little children and tells us to be very careful to ensure that we do not despise his followers. His followers that may seem to remain immature, his followers that still sin, his followers that still ask the wrong questions, do not despise them. There may be some who seem to wander away. Do not despise them. What does it mean to despise one of these followers? The word here actually means make sure you do not look down on one of these children. That is how we have translated despising someone, looking at them and disregarding them. It means you don't care about them at all. Philippians 2 is is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Verse 3, we're told to esteem others as better than ourselves. This word translated here, despise, is actually the exact opposite of that. We do not esteem them. We do not act as if they have any value. We do not consider them worthy of our time, our resources, our life. We do not consider them worthy of the time that it would take to go and pursue them. If we esteem them highly, like we're called to in Philippians 2, if we esteem them highly, then we will sacrifice for them. We will work for their sake. We will do what he says in a few verses. We will take on the role of the shepherd for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will take that on because God has so perfectly cared for his children in this way. What do you think? What do you think, he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices more over that one sheep than the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. God cares about his people. God will not allow any of them to perish. And so if you are a part of his church, if you are a part of God's family, you need to care about one another in this way. We all need to be ready to go after that wandering sheep. This is not just a call to pastors. This is not just simply the work that God does. This is now a call for his people to take part in this. He is calling each one of us to do this work. The shepherd does it because he cares, because he knows he has a responsibility towards the sheep. We often don't see that we have a responsibility towards our brothers and sisters. No one has the responsibility towards my children that uh, that I have to keep them safe, to stay with me. That is my responsibility, and I feel it, and I will do it willingly and joyfully. We don't often feel that for the sake of those around us. 
We need to be ready to take responsibility for the holiness of others in this church. We need to care. We need to be ready to work. Otherwise, we are in danger of looking down on God's people and not caring about what God cares about. Jesus then adds emphasis, and I don't want to just pass over this verse. Uh, Jesus then adds emphasis by letting us know that, that not only is he at work, not only is the Father at work, not only is the, the, the Spirit at work, but he also has his angels engaged in the same work. He says at the end of verse 10, after he says, do not despise any of my followers, he says, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, this is an easily misunderstood or ignored verse. Um, this verse is often used to make a case uh, for each individual having a guardian angel. Um, whether or not this proves or disproves that, it's, that each of us has that is, is, is not clear. But what is clear is that God has put to work his angels for our sake, for our good. Uh, as one commentator put it, the angels encamp around the godly. That's from Psalm 34. And not just one angel, but many. Many angels have been committed to guard every one of the faithful. Let us rest satisfied then with holding that the care of the church is committed to angels to assist each member. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, say it this way. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of the angels compare to Jesus is what he's saying there. But then he says, are they not all, are those angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels in this world have a specific assignment. They always know what God has for them. They are, always, they are always seeing the face of God. They always know what God desires from them. It is to serve for the sake of God's people, to help strengthen you and I, to help encourage every member of God's church until we reach eternity, until we inherit that beautiful salvation. God is at work. Christ is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work. And the angels are at work to lead us away from sin towards life in Christ to make sure that we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so he wants us to care about the same things that he cares so deeply about. He invites us to now be a part of this thing, same process. He wants his church to be involved in the work of turning people from their sin. So we must pursue members of the body of Christ that are wandering away. Verse 12, he tells us, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray or wanders away, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one? What is that wandering away that Jesus is talking about? The verses right before and right after help us understand what he means. Verses 7 through 9 of chapter 15. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And he says this, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And then in verse 15, we are told, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault and rebuke him. This wandering, this going astray, this whole passage here is about sin. 
It is about what sin does to us and about the lengths that we go to to keep ourselves from sinning. The wandering sheep here are those brothers and sisters that sin has taken hold of and has made them wander from what they know is true. Wander away from the truth. He reminds us again and again, do whatever you have to do to stop sinning. Cut your hand off. Take your eye out. Go and confront your brother. Whatever it takes, stop sinning. Sin leads us away from God. It's, 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 it's the whole purpose of sin. Sin pulls at our heart. Sin rips us away from the people that we should be in fellowship with. It rips away at our unity. We need to see sin as it truly is. We need to see sin as, as, as the destruction that it causes. And when we see that, we should do whatever we can to help keep one another from sin. It says we leave the 99 and go and search for that one that is wandering. Jesus left heaven and came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. He left heaven to pursue sinners, to pursue us with grace and forgiveness. And now we are called to do the same. We pursue those who are weak and young and immature and might be led away by sin. We pursue those who have sinned against us. And we pursue those whose sin would lead them astray. We pursue them. We go after them, which means we get close to those who are wandering. This is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This is the whole point of getting close to our brothers and sisters. It says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit or you who are strong should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. You're going to go after them. You're going to help them. You're going to be gentle with them. You're going to be patient with them. You're going to help them get out of that sin, be restored, making sure the whole time that you don't find yourself being tempted to sin. You are going to have to go after them gently, lovingly, patiently. They have been taken. They are in the sin is grasping for them. Sin is going after them, trying to deceive them, and now you get to do the work. You get to do the joyful work of pursuing them so that they can be restored. You cannot do this from a distance. You're going to have to be present in people's lives to actually do the work that he's calling us to here. You're going to have to know them well enough to know what that wandering looks like. They need to already know that you care about them. They need to know that when you come after them, you're coming after them as someone who cares about them and loves them. You're going to have to know them well enough to be able to see the sin in their life that is leading them away from God. It could be that they've stopped coming to church or they stopped coming to your community group. They might just tell you outright what they're thinking. It could be things they're saying or not saying. Many times you're going to have to see the sin in their life that is taking them away that is causing them to wander. Jesus knows us intimately, perfectly. He is close to us, so we should get close to one another. We have to know our brothers and sisters well enough to know if they are wandering. If we're honest, the way we prefer to deal with people that are dealing with sin, that, that have sin in their life, is to stand far away from them, yelling at them to come back. It is easier for us to lob Bible verses at them from a distance than to just rem get close to them, to, to, to point out what's, what's going on in their life, to remind them what they are doing is wrong. We are called to get close, to go after them, 
To do that, we are going to have to go to them in humility. We need to go to them as brothers and sisters that care about them. We need to go and gently and clearly point out their sin. Verse 15, right after he's finished this parable, he goes right into this section that deals with how do we confront sin and says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault or rebuke him. Uh, somewhere along the way in the, in the history of the church, the word rebuke has gotten uh, really, really heavy. Um, it became something that really only self-righteous jerks do, um, something that we became afraid of, that we didn't want in our life. Uh, but rebuke in this sense, pointing out the sin in somebody's life, is actually a, a, a deep love for a brother or sister. It is a deep love that comes from knowing where sin desires to take us. This is just being part of the church. This is just being part of, of life together, of community together, of knowing what God has done for us. And because of that, we go to one another. When we see sin, we say, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about the way you're living. Some of the things that you're doing right now aren't in line with the gospel. I can see the sin in your life. I can see it because I know the sin in my own life. I know the impact it can have. I know how it can take hold of my heart. I deeply care about you. And so I want you to be able to see it and stop it. Many times in church, we are, we are looking for friends. We are looking for relationships. We might like the sermons. Um, but church is meant to be a family of men and women who make a covenant before God, to God, and with one another to, to teach one another to, and to be taught, to encourage and to be encouraged, to make disciples and to be discipled, and to, to rebuke sin and to be rebuked. Why? Not because I don't like the way you act or the way you talk, but because God doesn't want any of his children to perish. He doesn't want any of his children to get caught up in bitterness, selfishness, pride, greed, lust, or anything else that would cause them to wander away from him and his people. And through going to them and pointing out their sin, God has given us an incredible opportunity to win our brother or sister, to help them to know that they have been set free and from the grasp of sin and to, and to welcome them back as they truly turn from that sin. That is why it's described as you have won your brother. It is a victory. Something great has been accomplished. When one sinner repents and turns back to God, there's a special joy in heaven. It says in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 18, if he finds that one, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that went astray. Our Father is zealous for his people, and we should have this same level of concern and affection for his people. We should be wholly and entirely committed to the, hol the holiness, to the discipleship of our brothers and sisters. We should compel one another. We should compel each other to leave sin behind and return to God. We should boldly proclaim that there is still hope, that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and that we can leave all of that behind, return to God, and we will find grace and forgiveness. We go to them ready to extend grace and forgiveness. We celebrate and we rejoice because we know and remember all that God has done for us. That we were once lost in our sin and he pursued us 
and rescued us from sin and death. We so often forget how lost we were in our sin, how much God did to rescue us from our sins, how much he is still doing and will continue to do to save us from our sins. Because if we remembered, if that was always in front of us, if that was always the lens that we looked through, then we would joyfully do all that we can to pursue anyone that was getting caught in their sin, to go after anyone that was wandering, to go after any, any heart, any brother or sister that we see sin is taking root in your heart, we would do whatever we could to go after them and help them out of that, to lead them out of that. We would go ready with grace, mercy, forgiveness. We would extend that to them. We would be ready to celebrate and rejoice, but we would want to see them be set free, know the freedom that they have, know that the freedom that they have in Christ to be set free from their sins. We would do it with a passion because God sent Jesus into this world and did that so perfectly for us. Uh, we are going to close out uh, by just reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Honestly, there are a few places in the Bible that remind me so clearly of what God has done for me. There are a few places in the Bible that remind us what God has done for us. And so I pray, my prayer is that, this would, that these words would be a call to act, a call to humble yourself, a call to care about what God cares about, a call to gently, patiently pursue brothers and sisters whose, whose sin is leading them to wander. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll read uh, for a little bit. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus." It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. Remember, you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Father, we were all once far away. We had chosen our own way. We, like sheep, had gone 
into our own way, had gone away from you, and you so beautifully and amazingly extended the riches of your grace to us by sending your Son into this world, saving us, saving us from our sin. Father, we praise you and thank you because it is you that that did that work. And I pray that you would help us to remember, to remember that that's who we were, that we were separated from you, and that you came and made us a part of your family, made us a part of your kingdom. And I pray that that would give us a passion and a desire to help strengthen, take responsibility for those around us, that we would see in them what you have done for us, that we would see in them not, not just their sin, but your desire and your passion for them to be set free from the sin that so easily entangles them. So Father, give us that desire. Give us the boldness to go to one another. Give us the boldness to, 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 and the grace to be able to go to one another and help each other out of our sin. Care for one another as you have cared for us. Humble us today. Make us walk in that humility each and every day. Father, we thank you for it all. We love you because you have done this so perfectly with us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information and to hear other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.